Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Greenlight Bookstore. Through knowledgeable staff, curated book selection, community partnerships, and a robust e-commerce website, Greenlight combines the best traditions of the neighborhood bookstore with a forward-looking sensibility and welcomes readers of every kind to the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more and shop online at greenlightbookstore.com. And we're brought to you by Flourish After 40, a women's retreat cultivating growth and contentment in midlife. Join facilitators Dr. Shannon Scherfee and Holly Stencil for a weekend of nourishing your body, mind, and spirit. We'll examine struggles, let go of narratives that do not serve us, and shift our mindset toward blooming in midlife. If you're looking to step away from stagnation and move into joy and gratitude, check out the Flourish After 40 Women's Retreat today. Go to tinyurl.com slash flourishafter40 to learn more. That's tinyurl.com slash F-L-O-U-R-I-S-H after 40, F-O-R-T-Y, to learn more. When I think back on the most difficult times in my life, I remember the death of my father and those eerie early days of the pandemic when we didn't know when the world would ever be safe again. And of course, in my case, those two events overlapped and coincided. But on my list of challenges, I'd also put the birth of my oldest daughter up there. I was a college-educated woman. I'd had this baby with someone I loved, and we'd made this decision on purpose. And pretty quickly, I found myself reduced to a milk-covered pile of rubble. It wasn't just that I didn't know how to feed or clothe an infant. Those things were definitely true. But it was also that I couldn't see my way through to a time when I wouldn't spend all my days feeding and clothing and diapering and comforting a baby. I was so lonely and depressed and exhausted, and there just didn't seem to be any end to it. Yes, logically, I understood that this child would grow up and turn 18 and one day move away from home. But when you're in it with a baby, when they're not sleeping and you're not sleeping, when you can barely get out of the house, the entire world is reduced to only that. I remember walking and walking, and in my case, my baby hated the stroller, so inevitably I was carrying a baby or wearing a baby carrier and pushing an empty stroller, and I saw no end to it. My guest today did everything I'm describing, and she did it during the pandemic, which is to say that she did much of it alone, which is unfathomable to me, because the only way I myself managed to get through those first six months, and truthfully, it's more like five years until that baby went to kindergarten, the only way I managed was by meeting other moms who became my lifeline. Jennifer told me about the mommy baby exercise class, and Mahal told me about the baby sign language class at the library, and I got to know Yasmin at the baby music class, and I met Allison at a mom and baby meetup near the cupcake stand at the mall. The only way I hobbled through was because I wasn't alone. And you know when you read a book about someone else's experience and you just find yourself nodding or saying yes out loud, I promise you that is what Leslie Jameson's prose is like. She somehow writes exactly what my experience was and helps me make sense of something I lived through with better words than I've ever managed to string together about it. Motherhood as seen through Leslie Jameson's eyes is both a mad, transformative mystery and a boring daily slog. It's both the Cheerios ground into the carpet and the love etched into your heart. 
Anyone who's been a parent or had a parent who's had a baby or spent any period of time alone during difficult weeks and months, I urge you to read Leslie Jameson's latest book, Splinters. Leslie's a literary force to be reckoned with. In addition to her new book, Splinters, Leslie's also written two essay collections, The Empathy Exams and Make It Scream, Make It Burn. She also gained prominence in my reading circles for her critical book, The Recovering, a memoir of intoxication and its aftermath. She's also written a novel, The Gin Closet. You've probably read her work in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Harper's, and a bunch of other places. Leslie's worked as a baker, an office temp, an innkeeper, a tutor, a juice barista, a gap clerk, and a medical actor. Quote, Every one of these was a world, says Leslie. They're still in me. These days, you can find Leslie teaching at the Columbia University MFA program. She lives in Brooklyn. Leslie Jameson, welcome to Wild Precious Life. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, I've been reading a preview copy of your latest book, Splinters. That's so good. And sometimes I had to remind myself that we've never actually met. Like we've never sat side by side trying to breastfeed babies who are teething. I mean, you so wonderfully capture the simultaneous delight and tedium of raising a baby and the and the ache of beginnings and endings. It's really beautiful stuff. Thank you so much. And it makes me happy to hear you articulate that sense of almost uncanny proximity because I think I always, I mean, as a reader and a writer, I love that feeling of of somehow being more than you can really account for or logically explain, like closer to a text. I've loved it when I've read books. I want to create it when I read. But with this book more than any other, I really wanted to write a book that where you just felt inside of it. You felt so close to the grain of it. You felt exactly like, yes, we're breastfeeding side by side. Where my copy editor at one point said like, I felt like there was absolutely no distance between me and this text. And it was like the best blurb I'd ever gotten. (laughs) I was like, yes, (laughs) radical proximity. I never even knew this is what I've always been going for. Yeah. No, I felt like we were not only feeding babies side by side, but we'd brought only one container of yogurt and neither of us had a spoon. And so now we were like, well, are you going to hold them both while I go? Are we just going to like tear it open with our teeth and try to like suck the yogurt down. So there was absolute kinship. And um, I think also like as wives, mothers, earthlings, pandemic survivors, we've all been so incredibly lonely. And I felt less lonely reading about how lonely you had been during this time. And it made me both reflect on how lonely I had been and also like, oh, but we're not lonely now because we're strangers who know each other here together on these pages. It's really a gift. I'm glad to know it's it's going to be out there. Well, thank you for saying that. And there's still time for us to like rip open a, a packet of yogurt with our teeth, even if our children are a little bit older. I don't think we've lost, we haven't <laughs> lost the chance someday when we're in a room together. <laughs> oh, good Lord. I remember a box of wheat thins that I just poured into my mouth. Um, but for anyone listening who has not gotten to imagine yourself feeding a baby next to Leslie Jameson, or maybe you haven't yet had the opportunity to drown and resurrect yourself in the wonder of this lady's prose, maybe, Leslie, would you just mind introducing yourself, telling us some of your story? So let's see. I'm a girl from LA and I, so I'm not confronting you. I'm not literally going to go through like every year of my life, but I, I was actually, I was just at this Ed Ruscher exhibit at MoMA yesterday. And, you know, he paints all these incredible paintings of like the LA County Museum of Art on fire and like Norm's Diner on fire. His, he's such a beautiful LA artist. And I told my friend, like, I, sometimes feel like such a creature of LA, but that it's this like secret that I'm always keeping, you know, I like love LA so much and I miss it, but so many people are surprised to know I'm from there. So there's like a little LA girl that I'm always carrying around inside, even in my life, you know, on the other coast, I live in Brooklyn now. Um, and you know, I'm, a, I, I, I write all kinds of nonfiction. I write essays about other people's lives. I write, um, I, I use my own life as a kind of set of, 
materials. I think I'm always trying to write into, you know, somebody asked me, what do you write about? And I'm like, I I just write about what it feels like to be alive. Is that a horrible thing to say? But I think it is what I'm interested in. Um, I started out as a novelist, actually. My first book is a novel. Um, but I've been spending some time with the real world like for like about 15 years since then. Um, and this book, Splinters, is of everything I've ever written. It's probably the closest to my heart. I, to- I told somebody it felt like... Um, scrimshawed made from my own bones like it's very intricately carved like the craft of it is very important to me and I worked it over and over and over and over again but it is carved from my bones (laughs) and it's about as you so eloquently described like simultaneity really I wanted to write from this experience of a marriage ending and my daughter's life beginning and feeling all this all these things at once, all this grief, all this joy, all this intense um, love for her, but also wanted to write an account of caring for a little person that wasn't just like, you know, the blissful, the blissful nursing, but was like, oh, fuck, like, what did I forget? Like, I put everything in the stroller bag, except for the one thing that I need. Like, I really, you know, I wanted to write those moments. And sometimes in early drafts, I wouldn't always write Like there were moments where I would act as if the stroller bag had been fully packed when it wasn't. And I had friend readers who called me out on it in the best way. Like my friend, Lynn Steger Strong, who's also an incredible writer. Should talk to her someday. Um, if you haven't already, um, but she was like, she was talking about this one scene in the book where I talk about walking through this greenhouse with my daughter when she was just a couple months old in like the dead of winter. And feeling like we were basically like witnessing the birth of the world, you know, like everything feels so fucking profound and life changing. And it's like, Oh my God, she's looking at a fern for the first time. Like it's all happening. Um, and then she just like takes like a big shit and it's just like, <laughs> right. there. And Lynn was like, this moment is great. It's perfect. And you need to make sure that every time in this book that you're like, in that reverie of like, it was as if we were witnessing the beginning of the world. Like you need to also make sure you're giving us like the shit, you know? And I felt like that was so right. Cause it's like, the truth is profundity isn't the disembodied. Every feeling is pointing in the same direction state of being. It's the like everything happening all at once and something feels unbearable and something else feels sublime. And I really wanted to capture that feeling of, um, yeah, just just holding it all or not holding it all or dropping everything, but it's all happening at once. Yeah. I think that if you haven't held your child up to one of those air dryers <laughs> in a bathroom and tried to blow dry their butt, I mean, that's that is part of parenting. I, I've never read it in one of the instruction guides, but it's absolutely a skill you need to have. You need to be able to like fasten a diaper from your own bra and or like the shirt under the shirt that you hadn't planned. Like if you can't be out in the world in pajamas, there's just a lot, a lot of that that goes in with it. And it's also delightful, right? Because the depictions of your daughter and the wonder that she brings to the world is both um, specific to your child and also made me remember my own, right? When she's making a mama stick and a baby stick and the big cul-de-sac is the is the mama circle and the baby circle that the way that children interact with the world is so so beautiful but as a mother i was often at my worst because i smelled like barf and or i hadn't eaten anything and or i was just so goddamn tired and so i wanted to be chronicling it all but i was also just like oh shut up about the stick already and then feeling bad because i I remember how I was never we were never going to watch TV and 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 she was only going to have instructional materials. And I, I once my daughter once watched what was that Jonathan Riss? It was um, it was like the story of the, the I called it the Tudor Pirates. I convinced her that it was the sequel to the Pirates of the Caribbean. And it was it was Anne Boleyn. And, and there was a lot of sex. And but what are you watching, mom? Oh, um. The t- Tudor Pirates, you know, just the, the, the difference, the difference between the mom that I often was and the mom that I aspired to be. There was a great hulking distance between those two. And I just love that 
That was true for you sometimes too. 100%. Yeah. And I think, I think actually so much of the book is reckoning with that, like reckoning with the image that we have in our minds of who we want to be, what our marriage is going to look like, what parenting is going to look like, what family or home is going to look like, and then how things actually play out. And there's always a distance. There's always a gap. But I think for me, this was a period of time where the gap felt acute and sharp and it hurt. You know, I I had always imagined building a family and then it became clear that I was going to be building it in a different in a different way that involved this this rupture of a marriage ending. And so I think I was confronting this gap between like the vision of life and what life is and always, yes, confronting like, you know, I want to be a mother who's like, here, let's open up this apple and look at the tiny apple seed that apple trees come from. But instead I'm like, you know, a mom awoken it. 4.30 in the morning, who's like throwing the apple against the wall because I'm so frustrated. Um, and then actually at that moment in the book, my daughter in this moment of like, you know, anger and frustration, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, I'm not the mother I want to be. Um, you know, she's delighted. She thinks it's hilarious. She's two <laughs> at this point. You know, she thinks it's hilarious to throw an apple against the wall. She just says, apple, you know, and she smiles and <laughs> You know, I really feel like even though she is mostly pre-verbal in this book, it ends when she's two, that my daughter does have a lot of the best lines. I mean, which is true for her still. She's um, about to turn six. And, you know, I just, I she's really a source of um, wisdom for me here. And again, not in that kind of sentimental, wow, everything she does is like a little Buddha, you know, but more just like, she is my teacher and she says things that surprise me and she reacts in ways that surprise me all the time. And she did back then. And that's part of what I wanted the book to document too. There's like a moment when I'm share, I was saying one of my students, I, t I teach writing, I teach grad students in writing and they're amazing. And this book is a little bit about that too, being a teacher and, um, there's a moment where I'm talking about responding to one of their essays and just going on this riff where I was like, you know, my daughter is, my daughter is my teacher. She's like water. And I'm like the rock that she's shaping, you know? And, and I basically like, you know, during this time of my life, boundaries were not my strong point. I don't think they're, they've never, let's be real. Boundaries have never been my strong point. But I was also like, but I wasn't wrong. You know, like I, <laughs> I was sharing it. It all the time, but I wasn't wrong. Um, so this book is, you know, more than anything else, I think it's a real uh, love letter to her. It absolutely is. Yeah, you mentioned boundaries, and that reminds me of two things. One is just I once queried an agent in her bio. She said she would, quote, read anything and everything that Leslie Jameson ever wrote. And I was like, fuck, why am I bothering? But, like, so your, your reputation and literary talent are just – they precede you. But you you really do write so honestly about like your worst flaws ever. Like we we shouldn't um <laughs> we sh we shouldn't cherry pick. Like I, I pick my nose, I fart sometimes, I've cheated on boyfriends, I've occasionally gotten behind the wheel, I've had too much to drink, I can be like moody. I usually try to keep that tucked away, but like in your best known titles, this and and the ones that come before, like you're jealous and drunk you're distrusting of romantic partners you've got an std like like you're delusional or unreasonable like and 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 i guess my question is something like why do you let us see all that yeah yeah you, <laughs> you can't see on the audio but as you're listening all these things i'm just like nodding Check. so <laughs> so vehemently yep yes all nonfiction. um yeah, I mean, part of it, I think, comes back to what you were saying earlier about loneliness and the kind of feeling of company that can come from shared loneliness. And, you know, I've never felt accompanied by literature in which characters weren't full of flaws and mess, whether they were fictional characters or non-fictional characters. So um, I always knew that if I was going to construct myself as a character, I needed to hold that messiness as well, or else I, or else my, my company on the page wouldn't feel like company at all. It would feel, there's something that actually I think feels 
tyrannical and lonely making about reading somebody mothering, for example, in a way that just feels totally beyond you. Like it's it's angering, I think, to read somebody mothering lonely and then you're like, but okay, great. I'm so happy for you. I that's not my life. And the same with, you know, to read if I read an account of somebody who, you know, never felt in a relationship that they were going to ask for more and more and more and it was never going to be enough and they were going to drive away everybody who'd ever loved them like and they were just sort of like happily partnered I think I would I think I would probably be like I'm so glad you exist I'm so glad that's out there it's not my that's not my deal and it's not to say that every every that I expect that my deal is everybody's deal every reader's deal but just that I think when you offer somebody the 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 kind of grime and complexity and like under undergrowth of the real um it's just it's much easier to feel not that not necessarily the company that company always has to look like resonance like my experiences are exactly the same as yours or my psychology is exactly the same of your as yours but you, you feel genuinely like another consciousness is fully present there with you and and I think that that feeling of company is what I always want I it's funny because I think actually my journey was a little bit more in the opposite direction. Like when I started to write personal nonfiction, my impulse was not to sanitize my presence, but to be so almost melodramatically self, self, uh, excoriating, like, you know, just like really hard on myself and here's every flaw and kind of like, I'm the worst person in the world. And, um, and I realized that, like, there were a number of things wrong with that approach. One, and this came really for me a lot through recovery, like, one, recognizing that there's a kind of intense hubris and self-involvement in, like, intense self-loathing. Like, feeling like the worst person in the world is just as exceptionalist as feeling like the best person in the world. And that characters are ultimately, like, they feel richest and most alive when they get to be a lot of things at once rather than all good or all bad. And I was kind of flattening myself in the same way you can flatten yourself by making yourself seem noble or cleaning up all the details. You can also flatten yourself by sort of uh, litigating the case to relentlessly for, you know, everything that's wrong. And the last thing I'll say is I think sometimes that mode of writing feels a little like, even if you intend for it to feel like humility, I think almost being too hard on yourself or in a certain way on the page can can really start to feel like manipulation, like almost like you're saying every bad thing a reader might think about you before they can even think it and to say, look, you can't, you can't get me because I already know that I'm flawed in this way. And I think that that kind of... Um, I don't know, that kind of management of a reader's perceptions is I, I think people can kind of sniff it out, um, whether it's whether it's the polished version or the or the like determined self-castigation. <laughs> I think you wrote about that in The Recovering, which for folks who haven't read it is your 2018 critical memoir, The Recovering uh, Intoxication and its Aftermath. I have friends in recovery themselves for whom that book has become almost biblical. I I love that it's out there. For anyone who hasn't read it, this is the kind of thing where Leslie Jameson watches leaving Las Vegas and sort of envies Nicolas Cage for how much he gets to drink. <laughs> so bananas. Um, but, but you also, I, I also love that you weave in these lives of, you know, writers from Elizabeth Bishop to Stephen King to Raymond Carver, we get those discussions of writers for whom alcohol and addiction have been not just problematic, but uh, something that they reckoned with and wrestled with their entire lives. Do you think that writing that or, or I mean, you, you wrote that when you were sober, but was writing and storytelling part of your own recovery or was that just the thing you were doing all along and so you happened to write it down? Yeah, it's funny when you were talking about the book, I um, remember Stephen King uh, read read the book and was very generous and, you know, he was very generous in how he engaged with it. But at one point, I remember he said, 
I saw a lot of myself in this book. And I was like, do you mean the part that was literally about you? Um, (laughs) I was like, you were right to see a lot of yourself. I was literally writing about you. But yeah, that, I mean, I think part of what I loved about recovery from the get-go was that, I shouldn't say all recovery, you know, kind of 12-step fellowship-based recovery in AA or elsewhere is like very storytelling focused. And because I have been obsessed with storytelling my whole life, I think I felt immediately at home in that part of recovery from the very beginning. Like I, you know, there was a lot that felt overwhelming and strange about, you know, being in a room in the middle of Iowa winter with, you know, know, a bunch of people I probably wouldn't have been in a room with otherwise. Um, It just, it was, and, and, and kind of admitting, you know, as everybody who goes through this process feels, I think, some version of just the, the kind of terror of admitting, yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally fucking out of control. Um, but there were two things that felt immediately like home to me about recovery. And one was that it was the first place where people talked about drinking in a way that made sense to me. Like, um, yeah, the person who says, you know, I just love to have a couple glasses of wine at night. I'm happy for them, but that doesn't make sense to me. The person who says, I want the whole fucking bottle. I want to lock myself in a hotel room until I black out. You know, when I was in a room and hearing people talk about drinking in that way, I was like, yes. Like, why haven't we all been talking about it this way all along? So I felt immediately at home in that way. But to your, you know, other question about storytelling, I think I also just love that it was a place where people sat around telling stories. I mean, in a structured way. But really, it's what it's how it's how it works, you know, that that people tell share their stories. And um, and I love that. I was like, yeah, I, I'm first of all, I'm endlessly curious about other people and other people's lives. And, and I also really believe that stories are a way that we can um, heal, that we can find consolation, that we can engage in acts of trans- transformation by both narrating our lives in different ways and hearing other people narrate their lives. So it's like I had been, it's almost like I had been waiting my whole life for a space like recovery that was, I had been in literary communities my whole life. You know, I was like in a PhD program. I knew a lot of writers. I was myself trying to be a writer, but there was a way that storytelling was like, you know, it was about survival in those rooms and that made sense to me because it had felt in a way like storytelling was had been about survival the whole the whole time um, that we would live by sharing our stories and listening to other people's stories. So I think it only felt natural to me when I thought about writing about addiction and recovery. I, I knew I wanted to make a book that worked like a meeting in some way that was about not just telling my own story, but also thinking about storytelling and telling other people's stories um, and kind of giving that feeling of, 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 of a chorus. Yeah. Well, that's the book I think that uh, made you ubiquitous to me. I I knew you from other writing, but I think that's the one that perhaps put your name maybe on the syllabus that would have been in the class, the grad class that I was taking, things like that. And it's all very well, well deserved. I don't remember if it was there or this one or in something else I read where a critic kind of lobbed this at you and said that you're, quote, trying to replace shame with shamelessness. And I was thinking about that. I was trying to figure out, like, did that critic think that was a critique or a compliment? Um and I was wondering whether we should take it as one. How do you interpret that? You're trying to replace shame with shamelessness, Leslie Jameson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. My name almost rhymes with shame. Which I was yeah. thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, so, yeah, I actually write about, I mean, it feels apt to talk about the recovering a little bit in part because part of Splinter, the recovering came out almost exactly the same time my daughter was born. And so I write a bit about, you know, that simultaneity, birthing a book and birthing a child at the same time. I took her on tour. Um, and I, I, I am writing, you know, a bit about just like kind of 
being a writer in the world, which is in a way, it's one of the hardest things to write about. It feels sort of meta and uh, navel gazy. Um, but I, I was really struck by that comment. The critic is it was with James Wood, um, and we were doing an event together at Harvard, and I find him to be incredibly. Uh, he's smart, which you kind of know from reading his work. Like, of course, yes, he's very smart. I find him to be extremely warm in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have expected. I, I wouldn't have assumed that from his work. I wouldn't have necessarily thought he wasn't, but there was a, a almost a, a paternal energy to him, um, just a, a caringness. And I think when I heard him asking that question, I... I didn't, I didn't take it to be a criticism. I don't know whether it was praise or just analysis. Um, but he, I think he phrased it like you're trying to break through shame into shamelessness, which felt very evocative to me, almost like you're breaking through the crust of something to get to something kind of more alive. And that did resonate for me because, you know, I feel like that's what I'm always trying to do when I'm writing, like break, break through a kind of hardened, calcified, very familiar version of the story. Like at one point, actually, when I'm describing talking about it with my students in Splinters, I say, you know, I, I talked, I call it like the cocktail party version of a story. Like we all have these shorthand versions of things that have happened to us, things from our lives. And I'm always trying to break through that cocktail party version to tell something messier. And so I think shame can sometimes make us tell a very limited, reductive, sort of straitjacketed version of a story. And so I took him to mean sort of how do you, how does your work try to kind of break out of that mode of apologizing or feeling embarrassed by experience and just writing it, right? Trying to write into the fullest, most robust, truthful version of it. So as with maybe a lot of things, I like made his comment what I needed it to be. But um, yeah, I mean, I definitely don't really have very much to say to kind of moralizing takes on my work. You know, there are plenty of moralizing responses I could imagine somebody having to my work. As you say, it's like there's all kinds of sex and drugs and, you know, an STD and all this stuff. But it's like, to me, the interesting questions to ask of those are are the same as they always are. Like, yeah, what is what did it feel like? And how did it change you? And what did what did yeah, how did it make you think about what it means to love other people or, you know, who you even think you are, you know? So um I hope in breaking into shamelessness it's a that's a way of thinking about just breaking into truth. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. In this latest memoir, Splinters, as we have already brought up, it's it's your life as a mom. You've 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 birthed these books. You've birthed this baby. You are in a relationship, and then we are watching the relationship uh, come apart. We're watching you um, move into the pandemic as a single mother. I have I have three kids. Uh, we live in the burbs here in Cleveland. The pandemic wasn't great for us. Like two, th- two thumbs down on that. But your descriptions of a solitary life that you lived with your then two-year-old daughter in New York City depicted a very particular kind of hell for me. Um, can, we, can we let some listeners just let's let's give them some highlights, perhaps, of what it was like to to live in the pandemic as a single parent in New York City? Yeah, I, I would probably say two two thumbs down from us as well. I mean, my my particular four four thumbs down if you count, <laughs> you know, the tiniest tiniest best thumbs in the world. Um, yeah, I mean, so our our pandemic. And especially the kind of first month of the pandemic, which I'm really focused on in the memoir, is 
you know, I got, I got COVID in that like very first wave in March, 2020. Um, so it was, yeah, kind of full lockdown. Um, just me and my girl, I, you know, I, but I do, I share custody mostly. Um, but I think we both agreed that in that, you know, we just wanted to try to keep everybody we could safe. And so it was, it was just me and her and I was sick and, you know, but I never, I mean, I have to say like, if I had gotten really ill in the way that obviously so many people did, I couldn't, I would have had to do something. I would have had to take her somewhere. Um, so I was, it was, it, it felt, it felt like, you know, parenting solo 24 hours a day with a terrible flu, which is like no, small, no small thing. Um, but not, you know, not physically impossible. Um, but it, you know, it was like, it, it felt like being on the breaking edge of, we were still learning about COVID, but I felt like I was like learning about it through my own body. And then reading these accounts in the news, like the, actually the way I realized that I had it was that I totally lost my sense of taste and smell, which was not then a known symptom at, at all. And I, I told a friend, I said like, God, it's so weird. I just can't taste or smell anything. And she literally sent me like a tweet from a journalist. It was like, I think this might be a symptom. You know, it really was like, it was the, it was the wild west, like just trying to figure out. So I think that feeling of like the world is falling apart. I'm with my daughter every moment of every day. It felt sort of like the simultaneous, um, like, you know, constriction of the world to just us and just our daily rhythms of sort of, you know, her favorite pastimes, which were like at that point in her life, like squirting diaper <laughs> cream on the floor, putting my bras in the garbage. Um, and, you know, I was probably like a little more mellow than I was sometimes because I was just like passed out on the couch being like, yeah, great. So do <laughs> whatever you want to anything you want I'm just gonna be here like <laughs> fading into another realm of consciousness um uh and then really just feeling the world in such peril all around us I mean the sirens were constant the sirens were a constant soundtrack we had the 7 p.m cheering for healthcare workers every day I remember that from those first few months everybody with their pots and pans you know and and I think actually to your point about loneliness but loneliness together I think part of what it means to be in such a dense urban space is you feel very aware that everywhere around you you know everybody or at least everybody who doesn't have a second home <laughs> somewhere more beautiful in the country everybody is also in their own little private hell and so you feel this weird the company of everybody else, but it's very, um, it's, a, it's an unreachable, it's there, but you can't touch it and you can't really see it. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and I think in the arc of the book, you know, I'm, I'm aware that in a way, no, nobody needs to be told about the pandemic. Everybody lived through it. Everybody lived through it differently, but it's not news. Um, but I think for me, it was part of it was part of a story of um, kind of wanting to rebuild a life and starting to rebuild a life. But then even the act of rebuilding, like much less the original version of the story that you've sort of had to make your peace with giving up on, even rebuilding, it doesn't play out exactly like you imagined. So it's, there's this way that, you know, I kind of felt like I was in the process of rebuilding a home and then this other wrecking ball came and but I think it's important to narrate that stuff too that's like you know putting yourself back together isn't going to look exactly like you you thought it would either um and so I both I wanted to kind of do justice to that the raggedness of rebuilding and also to sort of fold into the story this this particular time when my daughter and I just felt like we were surviving together which in a way the whole book is about the two of us surviving together but there's a kind of starkness to it in in that pandemic narrative that that felt important to me to to narrate I actually attended a craft talk during somewhere in that time you did a craft talk for Christian Kiefer at the Ashland MFA it was 2020 2021 I don't know you're on zoom you're doing your talk and like your daughter 
rushes, like tumbles in. And it was actually funny because it was not long after that guy, I don't even know his name, he sort of gained international notoriety by like ignoring his child in the background while he's on the news. And like the child comes in and the caregiver comes in and they're tumbling and this idiot just like keeps talking. And you, you just like pause your talks like, oh, hey guys, this is my kid. And like, she came in, she was on the Zoom, like we were the Brady Bunch Zoom boxes, and she said hi to us and did her thing, and then um, she tumbled out with her caregiver. And I remember thinking, like, one, like, oh, she's doing this so well, and then thinking, oh, dear God, what is that like to have a kid when you're trying to do life on Zoom? Like, it's hard enough to have a cat and have life on Zoom, but, like, um, in Splinters, you write, like, the astonishing revelations of caring for a baby felt shameful to claim as astonishing or, honestly, as revelations at all. But I think that when the pandemic happens, like, that turns it upside down. But, like, even before that, you're, like, a very educated, full-grown adult woman who's been through some things. Were you surprised? <laughs> By, like, how little you knew about taking care of a baby or how hard it was to take care of a baby? Yes. I mean, I think there's – first of all, I think there was a uh, a way in which Zoom did offer these moments of kind of radical illumination. Like, they didn't always, you know, feel comfortable. But, it, I like, there's a moment I describe in the book where, you know, I'm kind of reading – I'm, I'm I'm doing a, a reading online and I'm reading this, you know, kind of carefully crafted essay about caring for my daughter. And then she comes in and she finds my like secret stash of cigarettes and starts like tearing them open and like spreading the tobacco <laughs> around the floor. And it's like, yeah, that's actually that whole it's like a piece of performance art or something where it's like you have the kind of the version you've turned into prose and then you have the little kid being like I like even the parts even the small pockets of privacy and transgression you try to keep for yourself like here I am just like getting my fingers dirty with them um so that yeah the mess of it and the kind of it made it impossible I think to keep separate selves and the, you know, to have the kind of writer self over here and the professor self over here and the, you know, AA meeting self over here and the mother self over here. Like they, you know, I mean, nobody experiences this parts of their identity as like having nothing to do with each other anyway, but like there was just a way that it was like all happening in the same space, often literally on zoom, all happening in the same frame. Um, and, uh, yeah, that to me is always kind of fascinating territory, like when the different roles that we play collide. Um, as to the question of surprise, yeah, I mean, you can be told as many times as you're told that like, you know, parenting is unlike anything you've ever done and there's no way to really prepare for it. But it's sort of like knowing abstractly that you're going to be kind of overwhelmed and have your mind blown by something is is it, it almost definitionally can't prepare you for the experience of it so I think I'm always trying to write into those moments of like real re realizing how little I knew like even from the very beginning like a very concrete one was like that somehow I'd had it in my mind before I had a baby that like the baby would always be waking up you know, that this would be this thing. The baby would always be waking up. And that's true. Like, she did do a lot of waking up. But it was, like, the bigger problem for me in the beginning was, like, well, how do you get her to sleep in the first place? Like, I was, like, this is actually looming large <laughs> as a problem in a way that the other problem that I'd anticipated didn't even recognize. You know, it's, like, I was, like, I and I remember, like, actually being, like, really worried about the cat jumping in her bassinet. But then the second we got home, I was like, I just want her to sleep in the bassinet. I don't care if the cat jumps on her. You know, so over and over again, kind of being, um, yeah, just humbled, really. And I think also experiences of humility are always interesting to me because they're experiences of perceptual change in some way. Like my friend Chloe Cooper-Jones um, uh, who wrote that book, Easy Beauty, she's another like tremendous just writer friend in my life. But in her memoir, Easy Beauty, she, she said to me once that there's a, 
moment of perceptual change or like revision or correction or understanding how little she understood or understanding something differently um, on every, every single page of the book includes some moment like that. And it was incredible to hear it mapped out like that because I realized that was part of what had made that book, Easy Beauty, such a dynamic read for me is this quality of like thought that's always seeing something it didn't know and that I hadn't explicitly named it to myself as like such a source of momentum and energy in the book. But that of course, like I, it, 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 it is a tremendous source of momentum and energy. Like somebody realizing, you know, the second somebody even says in conversation, I had no idea, but, or what I didn't understand was you're always like, yes, yeah. What was the thing you didn't understand? What was the thing you couldn't see coming? What was the, so yeah, I'm really interested in like moments where somebody's wrong, moments where I'm wrong, moments of surprise, like moments of, I always, you know, I, my boyfriend in college, who's amazing guy, great guy. He's a rabbi now. Um, he once told me like, cause I was like, you don't seem like you're surprised by much. And he's like, yeah, I'm not. And I was like, it was a real kind of you, f- you hear the church bells ringing as it were, you know, like where it's like, oh God, like, I don't know. Something about it was very unnerving to me. And just like, I don't think I like it that you're not surprised. Anymore. I don't think it's a good thing. Um, or it's not for me, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I was both surprised by almost everything about parenting. And, and I think it's connected to something you actually said way at the beginning of the conversation about, often not feeling like the best version of yourself as a parent. Like, I think one of the things that I'm really fascinated by in parenting and really in most close dynamics is like, how, how is the kind of self curation that we might try to bring to other parts of our lives, like sharing the best parts of ourselves or the, you know, the most thoughtful, witty, interesting parts of ourselves. Like parenting is a realm where we have no choice but to bring like kind of the worst of ourselves too. I think I don't know a parent who hasn't felt like oh, some of my worst moments have been in relation to this person that I care about the most, you know, it's, and, but I think accepting that it's like, yes, I I am myself in my fullness to this person rather than a sort of curated or partial version of myself is, is there's something that's really important to me about just like what intimacy is or what love is that those have to be states of relation that can hold, um, you know, hold the parts of ourselves that, that we can't stand or would want to hide. I'm thinking about the difference between being a brand new parent and like the, the kind of dumb stuff I did, or I'm remembering myself pushing a stroller one handed up that big hill, in fact, in New Haven. Uh, we would have been there about the same time, I think. Um, I was pushing the stroller one-handed because my daughter was screaming so much in it that I was calming her down and then she fell asleep. But when I tried to put her back in the stroller, of course, she woke up. So, like, in an ordinary... I, I didn't want the stroller to get stolen, so I had to keep... Strollers are expensive, so I had to keep pushing the stroller. And I don't know where it was I thought we needed to be. I'm sure I had already missed the class that I was to have been to. But I was pushing a stroller up a hill one-handed with a sleeping baby. And that felt like the only thing I could do at that moment. And and now there are a million benches in, in New Haven. I, I don't know why I didn't sit down on the ground and just, like, take a minute. But I, I feel like so much of my early parenting was this, like, fight. Like, this is how I want it to go. And it isn't going that way. So let's just keep trying to make it go that way and I'll, I'll, I'll carry the screaming child or I will, I don't know, I, I got out and walked in traffic once on I-95. Like, we're going to get there one way or the other. The child won't stop screaming. I'm getting out. And my husband was like, what are you doing? I'm like, stop the car. And I just took the baby who's screaming like, I'll meet you there <laughs> where I thought I was going to get. I don't know. Like I had to, I wasn't, um, I wasn't easy in it. I missed a friend's wedding because my kid threw up so much in the rental car that like it was all over her and it was all over me and I was like what's the choice here do you go to the wedding and vomit or do you like risk misking the wedding to like put new clothes on this like vomit or no vomit now I would choose vomit I would show up in the vomit because like showing up for people you love they will 
understand that you're covered in barf and that will be the story you tell. But I, I feel like I spent so long trying to like fight how things were going in the beginning and that actually just made things worse. Yeah. It's, 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 it's you know, kind of amazing those moments of like looking back and being like, you know, why didn't I sit down on a bench? And I think, you know, it, it connects to feeling like in early recovery, I remember, you know, feeling so, so many things about winter, like, oh my God, like winter just kills me all the time. And like, to be fair, I lived mm-hmm. in Iowa and like, you, you know, <laughs> you know, the Midwest is not fucking around when it comes to winter. <laughs> uh, I am from LA. Um, but I think there was this feeling of sort of like personal assault, you know, like it's, I'm just fighting this season. And then I remember like an early recovery, a friend gave me their old down jacket and it was like, oh, I also could have gotten a better jacket. You know what I mean? Like this existential struggle had another, (laughs) there was another way, you know? And, and yeah, with like, you know, there's a scene in the book where I described taking my daughter on a hike and just that feeling of like, I'm going to get there. Like, we're going to get to the end of this hike. Like, and you know, it was like a hike to an old abandoned mine shaft. And I just remember getting to the mine shaft and being like, all right. Like, but like, what was it that I was, what was the nature of this fight? Like, what was the, what was it? You know, I guess, I guess it's to feel like you haven't totally lost any agency in your own life. But then there's like a moment, you know, just like, I don't know, 50 pages later where it's like, we're going on a hike and she's just screaming and screaming. And so I just turn around and, you know, let her run back and forth on this stretch of like sun-baked peeling asphalt where she was obsessed with this one white line and she just wanted to go back and forth. You know, and I just remember standing there on this like sun-baked asphalt and just being like, this was not like we were supposed to be going for a hike, you know, but it's also (laughs) like, all right, like she's, she's having an ecstatic experience with like, you know, it almost looked like she was like a drunk doing a line test. You know, she was just back and forth, back and forth in her little New Balance Velcro sneakers, just loving it. Um, and, I, you know, and sometimes you are just like, yeah, I just have to surrender to what is and sort of understand that there's a very ancient part of me that feels like being okay has to do with or is dependent on following through with this notion I had of what had to happen, like walking to a particular place with this baby in the stroller, getting to the place or whatever. And that, and that, yeah, that I am confronting something quite ancient when I like have the terror of those moments of like, yeah, maybe it's going to totally fall apart and it's going to happen a totally different way. Um, which is kind of the, yeah, it's like the reckoning on all scales in the book from like the botched hike to the, you know, reconstructed life. So my kids are a little older now. Um, as we're speaking, they are 18, 14. I keep saying my 10-year-old's 11 now. I've been saying that for like six months. So they're a little older now. I used to write about them quite a bit, which made sense because like they consumed the hours of my days. Like I'd barely talk about anything else. Like my daughter asked me, where babies come from and she was like four and I hadn't had coffee yet like my other kid ate all our Christmas ornaments which was just not something again not in the books like you just couldn't help but scribble down their like shenaniganizing and as they got older I had to think about like the boundaries between my story and theirs like I 100% believe that like when they're just these like lumps that story is mine they're not even verbal yet I've got it you know Um, But you're so self-revelatory and unbound when it comes to your own life. I notice you don't use your daughter's name in this book, which seems like a boundary. Um, Do you think you're going to have other rules? And I don't use the word rules because I don't know that's the right one. Like, at what point will she cease to be fair game in your stories? Or have you thought about that? I have. It's a great question. I haven't written that much about her in the sort of ages she's been, you know, the the four years after the end of that book um 
And but I am, but I remain pretty fascinated by her, and she remains a sort of consuming part of my life. And so I am interested in writing about her childhood. But I do feel um, a strong sense of what you say, which is that yeah, it's a it feels different to write about her even as a six year old, much less a ten year old, than when she was you know one. Um, So I don't totally know. I know that it will probably involve talking more with her it's sort of like her childhood is it's almost like this purgatorial space between you know the lump years when it feels like okay I can I'm not violating something and writing about her and then the the way I approach writing about other people when they're adults which is um you know practice that I've evolved over time and it plays out a little bit differently in every case but i I I do share work um, with anybody who wants to see it like well before it comes out and offer them not um, veto power, although in a few cases I have offered that. um, But mostly I say, look, if you want to take a look at this manuscript and tell me what you think um, and tell me, you know, if there are things you want me to change, like I would love I would, I would listen and I would edit. Um, and I, you know, there are certain things I don't promise in that. I don't say anything you want me to take out, I'll take out anything you want me to change. I'll change. Um, but I, but I, it is an important part of my process to at least, you know, say to people, if you, if you want to be part of the process in this way, you can, or I'd like that. Um, and again, those conversations have gone a variety of ways. Um, often they've actually really been in service of the work rather than feeling like, Oh, you know, had to take out the best detail or whatever. It just is usually makes the account more complicated. Um, but it's like, you know, when she's a kid, it's not exactly possible to have that process with her. Um, so in a way it feels like this, yeah, this in-between realm that I haven't yet kind of navigated in the way that I've been navigating this other kind of process of writing about the other people in my life. I've sort of I've, yeah, I've like developed my set of practices around it, but I think I need to develop a new set of practices uh, around, around this. Um, The book is dedicated to her and she is really stoked about that. Like if you met her on the street later today, she would probably tell you that. (laughs) Um, Congratulations on keeping your kids alive to 18 and 14 and 11. I mean, Hats off. That's huge. Yeah. A lot of bad choices and a lot of television would really be my only guidance in that regard. Um, Hey, we always end with a little lightning round. I could talk to you all day, man. We need to live closer together. I would offer to babysit just to hang. Um, Okay. Uh, We always end with a little lightning round. These are just multiple choice. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Coffee or tea? Coffee. Dogs or cats? Cats. Mountains or beach? Beach. <laughs> what are you more afraid of, long COVID or bot flies? Ooh. Uh, long COVID. Long COVID. <laughs> American Ninja Warrior or Murder, She Wrote? <laughs> this question is literally tearing apart. <laughs> What's nice? I don't even I know. Murder, She Wrote. Murder, She Wrote. My mother will always win. My lovely mother. <laughs> Now I'm picturing Angela Lansbury trying to navigate the American Ninja Warrior course. And she's, I mean, she's killing it. Um, Okay. Which guy is more your type? Lloyd Dobler from Say Anything or David Bowie's Goblin King from Labyrinth? Goblin King. I'm now putting everything together into a dream scenario where I'm like with David Bowie on a beach Drinking coffee. We've got a cat. I think it's all happening. (laughs) Uh, Which platitude do you like best? Keep it simple or just do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. Yeah, I like that one too. Keep it simple has its purposes, but as is demonstrated by the fact that I'm literally annotating every answer to a single (laughs) simple (laughs) lightning round. I I have never really felt like it it, it reproached me more than it witnessed me. Um, Okay. Are you a risk taker or are you the person who always knows where the band-aids are? 
Uh, yeah, tw- 20-something Leslie was a risk taker, but 40-year-old Leslie, I just turned 40, oh. does know what the band-aids are. <laughs> 35-year-old Leslie in the book didn't have any band-aids. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of books. You never seem to have band-aids in those books. You're entering your band-aid yeah. era. It's true. That's a great common thread because there's that moment where I was like drunkenly cooking and I cut off part of my finger with a mandolin and then I'm just like, oh, this toilet paper will work nicely as a medical supply. (laughs) Good Lord, Leslie. Uh, Okay, this is a fill in the blank. If I wasn't working as a teacher and writer and I had a little magic, instead I would be a... Mm, Fashion designer. Ooh, not cookies. (laughs) <laughs> that's I wanted to be a fashion designer when I was um a kid and now instead I just spend money on things that other people have designed but <laughs> did you have that fashion plates game or are you you're only 40 so maybe there was like you could do the different designs yeah 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 and it was like the 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 stencil almost like a a plate yeah I don't yeah I've really reached the edge of my <laughs> This is like whenever I talk, try to talk about architecture or anything even related to engineering and even the fact that I'm using engineering as a word to describe, to describe fashion plates. <laughs> but I always reach the end of my vocabulary. I'm like the thing where you press it and then it makes a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. As, <laughs> as a fellow engineer on the journey, I salute you. Um, <laughs> what is something quirky that folks don't know about you? A like, a love, a pet peeve? God, what's not in the books? Are they made into books? Um, um, oh, let's see. I am... Um, it feels almost like there are too many to choose um i love love island i love the show love island <laughs> um, and actually you know it was one of many in my current very lovely relationship that yeah like your 11 year old child it's like so it's like it's been almost 4 years now but um, it still feels like how oh, you know, sometimes this will call a new, um, but in the beginning, bless his heart. We both, um, listened to, we watched, I, he, I suggested we watched the entire season of love Island and he was like, sure. Yeah. Wow. And then he realized that it was like 55 episodes long and we watched the whole thing and he even managed to enjoy it a little bit. But now I realize how, totally antithetical to his taste it ever would have been and the last thing I'll share is that he hates fragrances he does not like perfume but I didn't know that about him and when we started dating I was working on an essay for Vogue about um smell loss and perfume I was writing a bit about having lost my sense of taste and smell in COVID and how that made me interested in why smell matters and I was talking to all these smell scientists and it was super fun piece to write but um, they also, because it was Vogue, they were like, how about we send you like a bunch of expensive perfumes and then you also like write about those. And I was like, yes, please. So I got these, all these perfumes. So I was like wearing a different one every day. And for, so for all of our early dates, I was just like had so much perfume on. And then like a couple months into our relationship, he was like, I have to tell you, it almost makes me feel like I'm going to pass out. So really, oh. like, like somehow I actually felt really, if I was like, you must have really liked me if I was like swaggering in with like perfume, making you watch Love Island and you were just, you know, <laughs> showing up anyway. Very sweet. <laughs> uh, there's a short story there in the making. I don't, there's something there, the Love Island perfume, like all these things he didn't like to do just to be with you. Very <laughs> romantic. Um, what's your favorite movie? Oh, we just did TV. That might be close enough. Do you have a favorite movie? I love um, so many. The one that's coming to mind is Rosemary's Baby, which is such a crazy <laughs> favorite movie, but it's it spoke to something. It felt like unafraid to say something that needed to be spoken. <laughs> that kind of makes sense, actually. Um, all right, uh, two more. What's your favorite ice cream? Mm, um, chocolate chip cookie dough. 
All right. And last one, if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? Mm, lying on a beach and reading. Oh, my gosh. That is yeah. that is my love island right there. Um, <laughs> love that. Uh, Leslie Jameson, thank you so much for stopping by today. Oh, my God. What a joy. What a joy. Yes, we have we need lifetimes to say all the things that need to be said. Seriously, I think it was after The Recovering was published, you shared something that you overheard in AA. It was like, things don't always get better, but they always get different. And that was so hard for me to sit with. But I find myself wishing you both better and different today. Wow, thank you so much. Yeah, I think um, they uh, in many ways already are. um, And I feel lucky for that but yes hopefully our paths will cross someday and uh, in the meantime thanks for having me here it was great absolutely folks our guest today has been leslie jameson a i don't even know what to say like an amazing writer you guys if you don't know her work yet you are in for such a treat go to your favorite indie shop go to your library and just read everything that she's written And um, the most recent one is Splinters, A Journey Into Motherhood. You can find them wherever books are sold. To everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.